Well, happy Mother's Day. It is quite a challenge to preach on Mother's Day. On the one hand, I love extolling the virtues of motherhood. I love celebrating the mothers that are here. I love talking about my mom and my wife. And our family has two new moms in our family. And I love to encourage them and tell them they're going to be awesome moms. And I love encouraging all the moms here. On the other hand, preaching on Mother's Day is fraught with all kinds of pitfalls and minefields because whatever I say today about moms, it wouldn't really be enough. I mean, let's just be honest. I, I can't really do justice to your love and your sacrifice and your hard work. Who could do that? Who could really do that? Nobody. Whatever else we would say today would just be scratching the surface. It's, it's also a challenge uh, to preach on a day like this because I know that today is, for some people here, not only a day of celebration, but also of sorrow. I know that there's people here who have recently lost a mom, and today's hard. There's some of you here whose mom is fighting an illness, and that makes today challenging. We've got some moms here who've lost a child, and Mother's Day is hard. We've got some single moms who have small children, and, and you really don't have anybody to celebrate you uh, because they're too young to really understand what's going on, and that makes it hard. We have some not-yet moms who want to be. We've got some people, men and women, who have wounded or broken relationships with their mom, and that makes a day like this kind of tough. There are those who have had miscarriages. There are those who have had abortions. There are some moms here who who are currently, have, they have children who are at this moment away from the Lord or kids who are suffering. This may be the first Mother's Day for a loved one that you, was very dear to you that's not here with you. And because of all of that, I want to shepherd us today in a way that allows for both celebration and sorrow. Rejoicing and weeping. Because some of you would say, yeah, I, I do have celebration and I have sorrow at the same time. I have both. And I want to just say, that's okay. It's okay. I want this to be a service where you are allowed to hold both of those intentions. This is a safe place. And you're not going to be judged. You're just going to be loved. That's it. Just loved. Right where you are. Right how you are. We love you moms. And so can we just, I've been waiting for Lexi to get back to do this. Um, So, look, it's, she asked me this week, are you going to have all the moms stand? I said, well, of course. And she was like, when are you going to do that? And I'm like, well, when do you want me to do that? And she said, well, my daughter likes to eat at the end of worship. So I'm not going to be in there. So I've been waiting for her to come back. So since Lexi is back, can all the moms stand? All the moms stand. Let us cheer for you, for all the moms. As I was preparing this message, I was watching a video from Christianity Today, and they were interviewing some moms who are in ministry and who do a lot of public speaking, and they were saying, what should pastors say on Mother's Day? And one of them said, just don't say anything cringeworthy. (laughs) 
And then she said, don't say anything stupid. And I thought, can you give me an easier job than that? Because I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. Because I had that goal when our children were being born. You know, that was my, I like to set my, you know, the, it, I like to set the goal low so I can accomplish it. So I just, my goal was just don't say anything stupid. And then when Marlene came to me when she was pregnant with Nathaniel, she came to me. It was uh, late at night. We're over here at Rolling Hills Apartments, and she said, my water broke. And I said, are you sure? (laughs) She looked at me as if to say the first sentence was something stupid. But then I thought, at least I got it out of the way. Okay, at least I got it out of the way. Another one of the ladies that was interviewed said, just don't bring any half-baked messages. No unclear, over-emotional messages that are patronizing or silly because moms need encouragement. She said, moms need more than a flower, and we do actually have a flower for you on your way out as you go this morning. But I got more than a flower because you need more than a flower. You need something that will nourish your soul. You need some real weighty, meaty message from God's word that is encouraging. And then she said, it is a sacred trust to preach on Mother's Day. And I kind of stood up straighter. So I want to give us something substantial, something nourishing from God's word. So if you have your Bibles, open to the gospel of Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And as you're going there, I just want to remind us that Jesus in the gospels had a lot of interactions with moms. First of all, Jesus had a mom. And actually, we could preach that. That's pretty profound if you stop to think about it. Jesus had a mom, and Mary is a very special person in the Gospels. She's a very special person in the New Testament. Uh, Remember, there were a lot of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, one mother of Jesus. One. And according to Luke chapter 2, Jesus respected and submitted to his mom when he was young. In John chapter 2, there's that story when Jesus turned water into wine. And it's almost, it's almost kind of funny. The elders were talking about it this morning as we were praying. It's kind of a funny story because Mary comes to Jesus. They're at this wedding. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they ran out of wine. And Jesus says to her, uh, mom, or, and the text says, woman, we don't talk like that around here, but uh, uh, woman, Uh, why are you involving me before my time? It's not my time yet. And Mary doesn't even acknowledge it. She just turns to the attendant and says, do whatever he says. And I can just imagine Jesus going, good talk, mom. Thanks. And then he tells, remember this story? He says there, there were six big containers of, the text says, between 20 and 30 gallons of water. So he turned it into wine. That is, if you do the math, which I have, it is 908 bottles of wine. For those of you who think that Jesus is not extravagant, he made 908 bottles of wine. So he responded positively to his mom. He also cared for his mom. John chapter 19 in the scene, he's on the cross. Remember, he's taking care of his mom even from the cross. He says to the beloved disciple, behold your your mother, and to his mother, behold your son. So he cared for his mom. But he also said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, there's a story where somebody comes up to Jesus and says, hey, your mother and brothers are out there waiting for you. And Jesus replied, who's my mother and brothers except those who do the will of my father? And, and, and on the surface, that sounds like he's being kind of disrespectful to his mom, but he's not. He's redefining what it means to be family. See, as for disciples of Jesus, our family is right here. 
other disciples of Jesus. It's, it's like the testimony we had. It, it's not just because they're here. It's we're family with them. And when they go through something, we're going through it. Jesus also said in, in Luke 14, he said, if you don't hate your mother and brothers and sisters and all the fathers, then you can't be my disciple. You can't, be, you can't take up your cross and follow me. And what he's saying there is not to actually hate your mom. He's saying Jesus comes first. So don't make your mom into an idol because she can't carry the weight of being the one responsible for your identity or your happiness. She can't carry that. She isn't God. So Jesus loved his mom. He cared for his mom, but he didn't make an idol out of his mom. And it wasn't just that. It's not only that he related that way to his mom, but, but Jesus, which was very contrary to the culture at the time, he was very sensitive to moms. He, he saw them when nobody else saw them. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, there's a story. Jesus was coming into the city of Nain, and there was a funeral procession coming out, and there was a, a dead person coming out, and it was the son of a, the only son of a widow. So this woman has no man in that culture. That means she's going to be destitute. Her husband has died. She's lost him. She's now lost her only son. And the text says Jesus saw her. And then it says, the NIV says, his heart went out to her. The, the, the Greek says he had compassion on her. And he put his hand on the coffin and he stopped it. And he said to the, the man, the, the however old this young man was, rise. And then the story's not over because he then gave the man back to his mom. Amen. Now listen, I, I don't know where you guys are here today, but I just want to say Jesus sees you moms where you are. No matter what you've lost. This woman in that story, she, she had lost her husband and she had lost her only son. I don't know what you've lost, but Jesus sees you. He sees your heart right now and he knows. And so as we go through this text in, in Mark chapter 7, I want you to remember from Luke chapter 7 that he sees you. Now, this text at first blush is going to look like Jesus is being kind of harsh with this woman. But if you will take time to let it in and unpack it, you'll see something beautiful today for Jesus and moms. And it'll apply to all of us. Let's begin reading in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of... Of Tyre. Now, quick little note on Tyre. Tyre was an ancient city with a very long and a very proud history. It was one of the greatest harbors, one of the greatest uh, fortresses of the ancient Near East. Phoenician sailors were the first one to navigate by the stars. So before them, you, you know, you had to just hug the coastline and then you had to hang up at night. Um, Tyre had been very famously conquered by Alexander the Great, but it took him seven months to do it. And the only reason he did it was because they wouldn't let him sacrifice to Hercules. So Tyre has a long, very proud history, and people from Tyre were called Syrophoenician, okay? They didn't really admire, the Syrophoenicians really didn't admire at all the Jews. That's actually putting it mildly. They looked down on them. In fact, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 20, the inhabitants of Tyre were, to some extent, taking bread from Galilee while the Jews who worked there were being oppressed. Now, that's a very important part of this story for the historical context to know that the Syrophoenicians were stealing bread from the Jews. And the theme of bread actually comes up a number of times in the Gospel of Mark. I wish I had time to kind of string it through for you, but I don't have time for that. So back to the story. Here's Jesus. 
He slipped out of Jewish country, right, into Gentile territory in order to get some rest. Now, has this ever happened to you? I think every mom knows what this like. You, sometimes you, you just need to be alone for a minute. I think, you know, you're just like, whatever, wherever it is, I just, I'm going for a walk, I'm going to go take a bath, whatever. You just need to get away. And so Jesus was in this place of, he just needed to get away. Verse 24, he says, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. I get it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. Just side note here, if Jesus is in the house, people know it. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now get the picture. Jesus is just trying to get some rest. It said he wanted to slip into the house and, he, and he's out of Jewish territory for this very reason. So he can be alone for a second. And this lady, a mama, whose daughter was possessed by an evil spirit, comes and begs Jesus to deliver her. Even though she isn't Jewish, Jewish, mere proximity means she knows something about Jewish customs. So she knows that she has none of the religious, moral, or cultural credentials necessary to approach a rabbi. Okay, she is, first of all, Greek Phoenician, okay? That's strike number one. She's a Gentile, strike number two. She's actually a pagan. She is a woman, and then in that culture, that, that was a strike against her. And, and she, her daughter has, the NIV says an evil spirit. The Greek says an unclean spirit, which is interesting because earlier in, in Mark 7, Jesus has already been talking to people about what makes somebody unclean, and it's not about what you eat. And so she's got five strikes. She's beyond out. And so she knows in every way, according to every possible standard of the day, she is unclean and therefore disqualified to approach a devout Jew, especially a rabbi. But she doesn't care. She's coming anyway. She barges into the house, uninvited, falls down and starts begging Jesus. And the word beg is is in present progressive. So it means she begs and keeps on begging. Nothing And no one is going to stop this woman. In Matthew's account of the story, Jesus just ignores her. And finally, the disciples go, hey, can you just tell her to go away? But she won't take no for an answer. And and do you know why she has this kind of boldness? Timothy Keller has has a book called King's Cross. It's all about the gospel of Mark. And and he has a great piece on, on this text. And one of the things he says is, really, in the world, there's four types of people. There's four different groups of people. There's cowards. There's your average guy, the average people. There's the courageous, you know, the hero, the bold people. And then there are moms. And and moms really don't count on the spectrum between cowardice and courage because if you're a kid, if if your kid is hurting, a mom is going to do whatever it takes to save them. I mean, don't you? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're normally timid or brazen, it doesn't matter what your personality type is, it's irrelevant when it's your kid. You don't even think twice. You just do what it takes. I mean, I have seen just around New Life Church, I have seen very timid, meek, quiet moms here in New Life Church if they perceive you to be messing with their kids. And you don't even have to, it doesn't have to be real. If they, it doesn't, if they just perceive 
you to be messing with their kids, they will very promptly rip your face off. Why? Because it's their kid. And this woman is desperate. So she's going to do whatever it takes. But Jesus almost seems like he doesn't care. Or does he? Verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Ooh, wait a second. Um, this scene sort of upsets our sense of justice, doesn't it? I mean, because at first blush, I mean, at, Jesus, I don't think you can talk to her like that, can you? I mean, whatever happened to meek and mild Jesus? We're okay, aren't we? For Jesus to be kind of rooted to religious leaders and the Pharisees and call them a bunch of snakes and whitewashed sepulchers. I'm okay with that, actually. But this feels too much. Come on, Jesus. What happened to the compassion? Actually, actually, I think the compassion is there. In fact, I think Jesus is inviting her to contend with him in a way that we know very little about. In our faith. Let me explain. You should know that in the ancient Near East, uh, the ancient Near East was not a canine-loving society like we are. Okay, our family has a dog. Uh, his name is Zeus. He's part black lab, part German shepherd. Uh, and he is a great dog 91% of the time. It was higher. We had a rough day yesterday. Um, his, his, his love language is physical touch and closeness. He just likes to cuddle. He's a huge dog, and even this morning, you know, I'm trying to talk to Marlene, bring her coffee in bed, and the dog was on top of us. So we love dogs, but in the ancient Near East, that wasn't the case, okay? In fact, biblically, references to dogs are usually hostile. In fact, to refer to a human being as a dog was dismissive. And in fact, most Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs because they were unclean. So what is Jesus doing here? Is, this just, is he just trying to insult this poor woman? No. The answer is, Jesus is speaking to her in something like a parable. He's using a metaphor. He's actually inviting her into dialogue to contend with him. It's almost like he's using a riddle for her to solve so she won't give up easily. He's actually, if you understand what's going on here, he's actually inviting her to be persistent. And therefore, he is actually inviting her to the table. Now, I know for moms around here, there's a lot of you moms that um, you're, you're like the last person to sit at the table, right? You're always concerned that everybody else is at the table and that everybody else is well-fed and everybody else is taken care of. But I want you to hear in this text today, Jesus is inviting you to the table. Let me break this down and unpack it. See, it might help you to know that the Greek word that gets translated dog there is probably better translated in English, puppies, there were different words to denote in, in Greek, different wild scavenger dogs. But this is the diminutive, which means puppies. It means domesticated puppies in the house. So remember, this woman is a mother. So here's what Jesus is saying. Look, lady, you know how families work. You're a mom. Children eat first, and afterwards, puppies eat what's left over. It isn't right to violate that order. I mean, you wouldn't take food away from your puppy. Uh, I, I, I mean, you wouldn't take it away from your kid and give it to your puppy, would you? Even if you love the puppy. No. 
Matthew's account makes it more explicit. He says, Matthew 15, verse 24, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Meaning, of course, that Jesus had to concentrate his ministry on Israel, the children, for all sorts of reasons before he went to the Gentiles. He was sent to show Israel he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of what the scriptures had said. The prophets, the priests, the kings, the judges, the temples, the sacrifices, it all pointed to him. Now, after his death and resurrection, of course, he had his disciples go to all the nations, but he had to start with Israel. That was the plan. So Jesus is simply saying, through a use of a parable, an analogy, a riddle, if you will, please understand, lady, there is an order here. I have to go to Israel first and then the rest of the world. But the woman, seizing on Jesus' words, gives an astounding reply. Verse 28, yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Wow. Get this. This is extraordinary. Don't miss this. First of all, the woman says, yes, Lord. She is the first person in the gospel of Mark to call Jesus Lord. Think about that for a second. She's the only person in Mark's gospel up to this point to call him Lord, which is remarkable. She recognizes Jesus. She gets it. She sees who Jesus, she gets the, the disciples didn't even get it yet. In fact, in chapter 8, they still don't understand the multiplying of the bread from chapter 6. And here's this woman in chapter 7, and she gets it. And what she gets is, there's enough bread for everyone. And that was part of the point of the multiplying of the bread. There's enough bread for everyone. With Messiah, there's enough bread for everybody. Here is a surplus. And of course, bread here is an image for the blessings of the Messiah's ministry. First to his own people, and then to us as Gentiles. Aren't you glad it comes to us? She says, yes, Lord, but even the puppies eat from the table, and I'm here for mine. In other words, you are the Messiah, and I know that with Messiah, there's more than enough bread just for Israel. There's enough bread for even us Gentiles. And she responds to the challenge of Jesus by entering the metaphor with humility. I mean, get this. Let it say, she's saying, here's what she's saying. Okay, okay. Jesus, I get it. I understand. I'm not from Israel. I don't even worship the right God that the Israelites worship. I mean, she probably, just from being where she was from, uh, she worshipped Ashtoreth, also known as Astarte, who was a consort of the Canaanite storm god named Baal. So she says, I get it. I don't have a seat at the table. I accept that. (laughs) Isn't this amazing? She doesn't take offense. She doesn't demand her rights. She doesn't recite her pedigree. Hey, I'm from Tyre, don't you know? She doesn't recite her resume. I'm a good mom. None of that. She says, okay, I may not have a place at a table, but there's plenty at the table for everyone in the world. And by the way, I need mine. She is wrestling with Jesus in the most respectful way possible, and she's not taking no for an answer. I love this. I love this. More importantly, Jesus loved it. Warren Wiersbe says this, It must have rejoiced his heart 
when she took his very words and used them as a basis for her plea. Ooh. I think there's a hint here about how we're supposed to come to Jesus. You, you, you come to Jesus on the basis of his word, not your pedigree. You come to Jesus on the basis of his word, not your resume. See, in our Western culture, we, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We don't know what this is about. We, this is hard for us. We, we only have the assertion of our rights. Our culture is such that we don't even know how to contend unless we're contending on the basis of our rights, our dignity, our goodness. We say things like, I, am, I, this, I have my rights. This is what I'm owed. We have, even though we accuse other people of this, we all, actually all have this, an entitlement mentality. Come on, let's be honest. Let's not just blame the other. We accuse all kinds of people of this, but we all walk around with this in our culture. I have my rights. I've been good. You owe me. But this woman isn't doing any of that. This is, again, as Timothy Keller, he's got great words for this, so I'm just going to steal his. He says, this is rightless assertiveness. Rightless assertiveness. She is contending. She is asserting but not on the basis of her rights. See, she's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. No, instead she's saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. Y'all didn't, y'all didn't get that. No, you didn't, because if you would have got it, you would be ooing and aahing more. I'll say it again. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And by the way, I need it right now. So she's entering into Jesus' parable. She's accepting it. She isn't worthy, but she asked for it anyway. Because he is worthy. And Jesus loved it. Loved it. In fact, one translation, you know, in the NIV it says, you know, since you had that reply, uh, but one translation I read said, incredible answer. N.T. Wright, who's a Brit, translated, well said. Because <laughs> that's how the Brits talk. But Matthew goes even further than that. Matthew 15, verse 28 says this. Oh, I love this. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, woman, you have great faith. By the way, The only other time Jesus said that was to a centurion. So the two times that Jesus is impressed with somebody's faith, neither neither time were they a Jewish person. They weren't even what you would call, have disciples following him. It was a centurion and a Syrophoenician woman. Woman, you have great faith. And he gave her what she asked for. And in fact, the, the, the deliverance from the demon isn't even really talked about. It's actually mentioned in past tense. It's like, he's already gone. For that answer, he's already gone. So she goes back and she gets, because this text, you guys, is not about the demon. Most of the text in the Bibles about demons, in the Bible, about demons, aren't about demons. They're about Jesus' authority over demons. Because this text is about Jesus. And about this woman's faith, too. See, apparently she understands and, and, and that Jesus and his mission is to Israel, and she understands that better than Israel does. She, she gets it better than the disciples do. She sees the sufficiency and the surplus of Jesus. 
And she sees that the way you approach him isn't on the basis of your rights as if you've earned anything, but you come in humility on the basis of sheer grace. Oh, I pray the Holy Spirit helps us see this right now. Because this is a picture of the gospel. Martin Luther was amazed by this story because he saw the gospel in it. The gospel, which says that in and of yourself, apart from Christ, you are more sinful than you ever feared. But you are also, at the same time, because of Jesus, more accepted and more loved than you ever dared to hope. See, this, this woman isn't too proud to accept what Jesus says. She doesn't say, how dare you call me a dog? I can't stand for this, which would be what we would say. But neither does she quit. Neither does she refuse to receive what Jesus is there to give. You see, you guys, there are two ways that you can refuse to let Jesus be your Savior. You can have a superiority complex. That means you are too proud to admit that you have sinned and that you don't deserve God to do anything for you. Can we just be real clear about this? God doesn't owe you anything. He's God. You owe him everything. In fact, the only reason that last breath you just took, you took because he gave it to you. So God didn't owe you anything. And so the one way to miss out on Jesus as your Savior is to forget that, that God don't owe you anything, that you have sinned. And falling short, but that's not the only way. The second way is to have an inferiority complex that is so self-absorbed in shame and sin that you say, I am so awful, not even God could love me. Both of those misunderstand the gospel. Both of those miss out on what Jesus offers because, listen, you can become so sin conscious that it degrades the work of the cross. Let me tell you something. The cross is greater than your sin. I don't care who you are. Because I know some people are like, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. I don't have to know what you've done. Uh, I, I love, it's A.W. Tozer, he, he says, uh, uh, in, I think it's in the knowledge of the holy. He says, you may say that my, my sin is like Mount Everest. And maybe it is, but he says, even Mount Everest can be measured. Mount Everest is so tall and no taller. It weighs a certain amount and no more. But listen, God's mercy, because it is an attribute of almighty, infinite God, has no limits, cannot be measured. So as big as your mountain of sin is, his mercy is bigger. And you are not the one person in the history of the universe that sin is bigger than God's cross. You can adopt a shame-filled identity that never comes to God for anything, and ultimately that will be just as destructive as the pride of superiority that refuses to admit that you have sinned. Somebody needs to hear what I'm saying. Because it is just, a much, just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse and to refuse to accept his mercy and grace because you think you're too bad for it as it is if you say, I'm too good for it and I don't need it. Both of those reject God's love. Do not allow pride to keep you from Jesus. The woman in this story could have come to him with the pride of Tyre, just reciting its power or its list of cultural achievements instead. She comes in humility. She doesn't say, how dare you? Don't compare me to a dog. You're a dog. Oh, she says, yeah. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the children's table. James put it this way, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. D.L. Moody talking about that very verse and this text in Mark 7 said this, Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. Listen, don't be afraid to lay down your pride and to come empty-handed to Jesus. No claims, no rights, no tricks, just in humility, a child to her father. Augustine once said, God is always trying to give us good gifts, but our hands are too full. And if they're too full, they're, they're, they're too full of the baggage we're carrying around that's centered on ourselves. Our pride, our resume, our pain, our past, our plans, our will, our way to do it. Our timing to do it. And Jesus just invites us to lay all that stuff down and come empty-handed so we can freely receive what he wants to give to us. But that's going to take humility. That's going to take you saying, yeah, God, I am who you say I am. And I'm not God. You guys know one of my favorite characters from history is Winston Churchill. And I like Winston Churchill for a lot of reasons, but one reason is he had a lot of great one-liners. And on one occasion, he was talking, I think it was about Clement Attlee, and he said about him, he is a very humble man who has much to be humble about. (laughs) The Brits are so good with their put-downs, aren't they? So clever. Listen, when when it comes to approaching God, the all-powerful, all-creative, the sustainer of the universe who gave his son to die on the cross for our sins, we all have much to be humble about. And Jesus invites us. This morning, in this service, he is inviting us, just like he did the Syrophoenician woman, to the table to contend. There is bread enough for all the children But don't come to the table on the basis of your rights or your performance. You come to the table on the basis of sheer grace. Because of who he is. He is Messiah. He is God incarnate. And because of what he's done on the cross. So come to Jesus this morning for whatever you have need of. There's plenty of bread at the table. In that interview that I saw that I began with, um, there was a lady, because they were trying to get uh, a minority voice for some moms, and there was a lady, Susie Gomez, and she was talking about Korean moms. And she said, and, and, and I just trust her on this because, as it turns out, I don't speak Korean. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I don't speak Korean. <laughs> she said, Koreans mom, Korean moms have a way, they have a phrase they say when they welcome you in their house. And it's this, have you eaten? Isn't that beautiful? I know Mavis is not Korean, but I could have swore she's done that book to me before. Have you eaten? A lot of moms here. That kind of sums you up. That's how you welcome people. Have you eaten? And when she said that, I just felt like I heard Jesus saying to us this morning, have you eaten? Come on, come to the table. There's bread for all the children.